Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and in this special episode, I am talking to Professor Luke Schaefer, who is the Herman and Amelie Cohn Professor and Associate Dean at the Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. There, he directs Poverty Solutions, a presidential initiative that partners with communities to find new ways to prevent and alleviate poverty. He is the co-author of an incredible book called The Injustice of Place with a few of his colleagues, Catherine Eden and Timothy Nelson. This book is spectacular. It's all about how where you grow up in this country is as important as who you are, who your parents are, and in many ways, actually, who you are, who your parents are, is a reflection of where you grew up and the quality of your schools, the quality of your medical services, and most importantly, some of the other things that we actually don't spend enough time talking about on this podcast, like the quality of public spaces and and, uh, gathering norms and just optimism. This is a book that blends statistics, history, and in-person interviews. It's extremely thorough. It's at times depressing, but it's also inspiring. So Luke, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I uh, I really enjoyed the way you described the book. So I wish I could just describe it as well as that. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I was saying offline that I've spent a lot of time in Mississippi. And actually, a couple months ago, I was in the Delta. I started Mississippi's first charter school. So actually, when oh, you talk about okay. a lot of the the data around economic mobility and this sort of crisis of uh, corruption and inequality within the schools and segregation academies and just the layer upon layer upon layer of history uh, that is weighing down the disadvantaged in Mississippi. I I learned so much from your your account of Mississippi, including the history of the Delta, which is a fascinating history. So really good job there. Yes, thank you. And I can imagine, you know, one of the things that really uh, I grew to appreciate through this book is that the challenges that we face at any given time didn't appear out of thin air, that uh, history, there's always a history behind them. So you know, hopefully, as you were reading along and uh, learning some of this history, it connected with uh, you know the exact experiences that you had had. Yeah, well, let, let me take a step back because I, 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 if I'm not too careful, I'll wind up talking about the Mississippi Delta the whole time, which I know it's one of four regions that you talked about uh, in this book. So, spell out to us first why you even decided to talk about place in the first place. But from what I understand, you and some of your colleagues had previously chronicled what it means to come from the poorest families. Uh, And obviously, there's been a lot of work uh, across the spectrum, people like Matthew Desmond, et cetera, and just like a conversation that has been growing and growing and growing over the past few years about what it means to be poor in America, what it means to be black in America. But you add a different wrinkle, which is, you know, what it means to come from the wrong place, right? Or the place that a struggling place and how that can set you off on a certain path. Yeah. So uh, Cassie and I wrote a book in 2015 called $2 a day, which was about really, really poor families in the United States. And and that was the first time we had a, a field site in the Delta and a field site in Appalachia. And, you know, we got our first inkling that uh, those were places that experienced uh, a level of poverty that was just qualitatively different from what we had seen in Chicago and Cleveland, where we had been, which had extremely uh, deep poverty, but had a a broader infrastructure of services, social services and systems uh, to support families. Uh, And, you know, a couple of years after that book came out, we got a 
a note from a program officer from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation saying, hey, could you do you know, a new project that would build on the project that you did only be about place? And there were some great works about place in the literature. Often it focuses on neighborhoods and neighborhoods in cities. Uh, you know, the you know, the seminal work, uh, The Truly Disadvantaged by William Julius Wilson from the 1980s, really suggested that growing up poor in a poor place had compounding impacts that we had to pay attention to. And, and Raj Chetty and Nathaniel Hindren have been doing a lot of work to look at social mobility. So, you know, we think of this sort of article of faith in the United States that if you grow up poor and you work hard, you should be able to rise to the middle class. And what their work using IRS tax records really shows is in some places in the United States, that dream is alive and well. If you grow up poor, you're just as likely to rise to the middle class. And in other places, you're probably going to stay low income as an adult. So we'd seen that, and there'd been a lot more work by uh, Angus Deaton and others showing these huge disparities in in life outcomes. So, you know, depending on where you grow up, you might expect to, to live 10 years shorter, uh, for example. So we wanted to try to use all of this data infrastructure, you know, estimates on poverty, but also on health and on social mobility to zero in on some of the most disadvantaged places in the United States. And so we got data from all of these different factors and we put them into a statistical technique called uh, principal component analysis. And it ranked every U.S. county in our 500 largest cities on this index of deep disadvantage. And, you know, the first surprise for us, which maybe shouldn't have been a surprise, but as, as scholars that have spent most of our time in cities like Chicago was that so many of these places that had the highest rates of poverty and the lowest social mobility and the poorest health outcomes were rural places, uh, only a handful of cities at the at the very, very bottom. And they were clustered in a couple of regions, in Appalachia and then uh, the Cotton Belt that includes the Delta and goes through the Deep South uh, up to the Tobacco Belt of South Carolina, and then South Texas. And so uh, we really didn't want to stop there. We wanted to go to these places. We've really come to believe that you always, as someone who doesn't know a place or doesn't really know uh, what life is like at the very bottom, uh, need to do what you can to experience it and connect it. So um, we decided we wanted to go there and uh, work with our research team to spend weeks and weeks interviewing uh, low-income residents and um community leaders and just spending time and as the investigators going back and forth to really try to understand uh, what was going on and, and think about some of the mechanisms that lead to deep disadvantage in the United States. Yeah. And in going to visit some of these places, the obvious benefit is that you have this textured set of details and analysis that goes alongside the history and the data, but you also were able to rule out certain places, right? Like there are some places you went and you learned, hey, actually, this was a, a statistical error, right? Like there was like one place, it might have been Virginia or something, where you went there and actually everything was fine. And you yeah. learned that the data was wrong. Yeah, yeah. We looked in and it turned out uh, there's a couple of places in, in Virginia that uh, had these life expectancies uh, coming from the CDC originally that suggested like 
they had life expectancies that rivaled that of the very poorest countries in the world. And uh, <laughs> it was weighting them down on this index. And so we, you know, drive through and we're like, huh, like, I wouldn't mind living here. And, uh, right. you know, so to the best of our best of our guests, they were like city counties. And we think there might be like a denominator problem. And so we forwarded that, but it clearly, you know, didn't make any sense. And none of the other indicators were bad, right? You know, like they had some poverty, but it wasn't like deep poverty. And then another one uh, was uh, cities that have large universities that have a lot of students off campus. Uh, those are tricky ones because sometimes students are uh, are actually quite disadvantaged, but you know, almost all students look like they're income poor. And so we were able to make some adjustments for that too. So yeah, we really believe like using the big data in partnership, right? In conversation with actually going places and seeing them gives us a, a deeper understanding one we can feel more confident about. And we talk about what makes a place, I use the term disadvantage on purpose because it implies injustice, which obviously the title of your book is Injustice of Place. And you look at a few measures. You don't just look at economics. You look at poverty indicators, poverty rate, deep poverty, uh, which is income uh, below half the poverty line. You look at two markers of health, low birth weight and life expectancy. And then you look at the rate of intergenerational mobility for children who grow up low income. So a lot of that Chetty yeah. uh, uh, yeah. data that you talk about. Yeah. So just for everybody listening, that's what we're talking about. And, and you talked about how this brought you to a lot of rural places. It was it New York, LA, Chicago. You know, there are some cities like Detroit, uh, Rochester, um, Cleveland. that were there. There weren't a lot of Western places. You talked about how outside of the Native American populations of the West, the West is is not ranking very high on the disadvantaged list. Uh, so we could put all that aside, unless there's something you want to talk about there. And then we can zero in on these four places. Yeah, I would just say, you know, uh, I've come to believe that uh, when we try to measure things like poverty, we have to have a huge amount of humility. Uh, so poverty measurement lately has really been trying to focus on like accounting for the high cost of living in some places, uh, which makes a lot of logical sense, right? It's like really expensive to live in an LA, um, or, you know, the Bay area or New York city. But having done this project, I've come to appreciate the fact that those costs of living are often also indicators of things in those communities that are, are beneficial to folks. So, healthcare system might not work like it should, but it, at least there's a hospital, which is not true in a lot of rural communities. So I always pose to my students a question, I'm going to give you $36,000 when you can either move to Los Angeles or you can move to rural Mississippi. An awful lot of them pick Los Angeles because of that sort of service infrastructure. And so, you know, I hope that this project goes some ways to just giving us, you know, the chance to step back and sort of think about the challenges that are faced in, in places that uh, a lot of readers haven't spent a lot of time thinking about. And so let's actually go through these places. You talk about Appalachia, South Texas, the Cotton Belt, and I'm missing one. Uh, yeah, that's sort of to South that Tobacco Belt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we talk about these areas and you, you organize the book around sort of common themes that you find in these places. And uh, one that you you talk about pretty early in the book is a history of intensive resource extraction and profound human exploitation. So some of these are obvious, the cotton belt, uh, cotton, resource extraction, human exploitation, slavery. Talk about how this echoes with some, obviously each place is unique and you do a really good job of talking about how unique some of these places are. So I don't want to lose track of that. But totally. 
Talk about how this rhymes in certain ways with some of the other places that you saw. Yeah, so originally we weren't really uh, looking at the long-term history, but uh, in this way, one of the ways we were all impacted by COVID, in our case, we started to look at history and realize that all of these places were like dominated by one industry. So that's the first start. So you've got cotton. And then in South Carolina, where we were, it goes from cotton to tobacco. So it's in South Carolina where they figure out bright leaf tobacco, which makes cigarettes possible, which, you know, has now affected the world, right? So that's that's where that sort of innovation uh, came from. Uh, in Appalachia, it's coal. So you can think of sort of the, the driving of industrialization and the driving of sort of the industrial uh, economy in, in the country. Uh, as being that being a real hub. And then in South Texas, in the late 19th, uh, 19th century, it's like um, ranching and cattle. But uh, when they figure out irrigation, uh, pulling up from water sources underground, uh, it becomes uh, farming. And uh, so all of the many of these ranches get sort of split up into uh, farms, and uh, it becomes the the hub for a lot of tabletop vegetables that uh, that we all eat uh, across the nation. Uh, spinach is an example. So Crystal City, it was our primary field site in South Texas, and uh, it's is proud to be the spinach capital of the world. And there's there's a number of six foot high statues of Popeye um, ar- around town, including right in downtown, where we all got uh, our pictures with. So um, in each case, these are all industries that actually require a very um, large and low-wage labor force, and they're all industries that are controlled by a small number of elites. So as you mentioned, I think uh, cotton and slavery, and then Jim Crow is an incredibly violent, you know, sort of the the next phase after slavery, tenant farming. Uh, you have a small set of elites who, you know, control every aspect of the community and uh, use that power to sort of enforce uh, the labor of a set of people for one industry that doesn't just drive that economy, but it drives the national economy, right? Cotton is like, it's financed by Northern banks. It's critical to the you know, development of the United States, and it's going overseas and, and being used in, in textile mills in the United Kingdom. Coal requires uh, workers. You know, it's incredibly dangerous. Uh, you know, there's sort of instances where multiple family members get lost in the same crisis in a coal mine. And uh, in this case, it's, it's not as violently uh, sort of perpetrated, but the company town uh, is developed where uh, the um, owners of the of the coal mines they build the houses they build the social infrastructure they own everything so when they leave you know you see communities that are just completely you know become destitute across economic and social life in a very you know in an immediate uh, moment in time in an interesting way Luke this is like you know, when I took international relations courses in college, they would talk about the curse of the natural resources, right? Places like Nigeria. And it reminds me a lot of that. And you, you have some interesting data here. So you talk about, for instance, a data from Jay Mandel, an economist who noted that of the 5.6 million manufacturing jobs created between 1890 and 1910, 
across the U.S. Fewer than 400,000 of them were in the six states uh, of the cotton belts. So there's a lack of diversification in a lot of these places because they were so dependent on what were previously profitable businesses. That's right. Yeah, the single profitable business dominates and almost crowds everything out. And you know, just to bring Texas in, it's interesting that it's it's a lot of the same families actually from the Cotton Belt all through the Mississippi Delta as cotton, you know, is really extractive of the soil and it becomes more difficult over time to to grow cotton. There would be these signs gone to Texas. And so some of the same families go down and then own the farms. And then in that case, they have a steady supply of migrant labor coming over the border from Mexico. And they develop an entire sort of new set of social relations to sort of dominate uh, society for a period of time. And and so you're right, I think, to make, we think the international comparisons uh, are right to make. And so we really think of these places as a set of regions where most residents don't have full citizenship and that there's an economic structure that supports the elites of the place, but also the nation. And so we think of these as internal colonies and draw a lot of parallels of of what happens with colonialization internationally with what we've seen with the long-term trajectories of these places too. Yeah, and you're careful to say that you didn't just pick the poorest places in the country. Like this is where... Uh, growing up in that place makes you disadvantaged on a number of measures. And actually in a lot of these places, there's a lot of wealth. And that's like, I think that would surprise some people. You talk about places like Greenwood, you know, Appalachia that actually do have pockets of extreme wealth as well. Yeah. And they're more unequal than even New York. It's right. Yeah. Yeah. When you look at the Gini coefficient, uh, you know, this sort of standard measure of income inequality, uh, they're just through the roof. And, uh, because you have in every place just a small number of families that have so much uh, of the resources. And uh, so that was uh, another thing that surprised me. Uh, This book was just totally a book of surprises uh, for me, but I stupidly thought like poor rural places, I thought for one that they were going to be predominantly white going in. It was just my presumption. And, you know, some of these places are predominantly white, Appalachia for one, but they're also predominantly Black Americans and in the Cotton Belt, and then um, Mexican Americans and South Texas, and that they're really, really unequal. And so, you know, you talk about these internal colonies, and you you kind of trace that history through to today. Like those exploitative relationships didn't stop in the 1800s or or whenever the sort of the height of the sort of national national resource extraction was, but they continued on. Like uh, examples, you gave data, for instance, on, you know, tenant farmers and the sort of indentured servitude that existed after slavery and sort of trace that through till today. And anybody who's ever been to the Delta would know that this stuff is as prevalent today as, as it has ever been. Um, and you track like how, like after these industries fall apart a little bit, they, they probably technology helps consolidate them so there are fewer people needed and then they these places are catching up to industrialization and trying desperately to attract businesses that in the age of nafta you know when we're picking up in the 90s are often losing what little industrialization they're able to gather at that point that's exactly right so they uh, a lot of places end up replicating the sort of one uh, industry, 
you know, we'll just, we'll just get sort of one factory in or one, you know, the new catfish industry and then, uh, and then things will be better. But, uh, constantly, you know, the problem was not being diversified is that when something crashes, it, it really, really crashes. Uh, and, uh, we, well, just one aside, by the way, on the catfish stuff yeah, is really fascinating yeah. because it's like, Mississippi is very powerful relative to its population size because it has two U.S. senators. And you talk about how they were under threat from international competition and did a slick move to get what it meant to be a catfish redefined uh, in a way that basically excluded foreign yeah. catfish yeah. and still struggled. Yeah, and like catfish was actually designed in a way to be pal- palatable to, uh, to Americans. It was like, uh, you know, engineered over time uh, through breeding. Yeah, it was just a little fascinating side. Sorry, keep going. Yeah, I um NAFTA is another place where uh I learned a lot through this project. So I think I was on the, you know, trade is is always almost always better and we have to do things to help the losers. And in this book, I spent a lot of time in communities that were were really losers to uh the the movement towards free trade. And there's some really new interesting research at the National Bureau of Economic Research that shows the political implications of that. So uh, after NAFTA was passed by a Democratic Congress and then begun to be implemented by a Democratic president, a lot of these Southern uh, districts that had really voted for Democrats for generations uh, swung uh, deeply, deeply to the right. And we see a similar thing in the 2000s as uh you know we have the china boom in manufacturing and you know i think there's a lot of reason to think that these um these movements in free trade they didn't just affect the well-being of these deeply poor mostly rural communities that we were in but they've really changed our politics and and maybe we're a a big part of the election of, of donald trump in 2016. yeah i actually was watching interviews of people at the iowa state fair recently uh-huh. And one after the other, when they talk about why they support Trump, talks about his trade policies. Yeah. 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 I think people are much more angry about that than uh, than at least I understood going on. Yeah. And it's interesting because you think about who it, I, like you, have been imperfectly sympathetic to arguments for trade, especially as inflation has gone up. But the you think about who benefits from a system of international trade, it's probably not the person in the places that you're talking about because you have to be in a fairly sophisticated, well-financed corner of the world in order to build the kind of complex networks and supply chains that exist, like whether it's legal compliance, you know, the kind of capital it takes to, to build the pipeline from A to B, et cetera. And that's just not the kind of business that develops well organically in a place like Mississippi or South Carolina or even Texas, right? Like, or certain corners of Texas, you know, those types of businesses are born in places like San Francisco and New York, et cetera, that are kind of the places where the capital is and the, the lawyers are and the people who can, can deal with the international complexity, you know? And I think that feeds into the sense that, that the people who are pulling the strings on this kind of stuff are elites because they are. Yeah, right. And like, if you can just layer that on to, uh, I think, uh, a deepening of distrust of elites over the last couple decades, it brings a little bit of clarity to a complex situation. 
Okay, let's keep going down this list. The one that I want to make sure we do not lose sight of is how these places deal with education, right? And you paint a rather depressing picture in each of these places of underinvestment or in some cases divestment in education of the disadvantaged, often to the benefit of the advantaged. Um, and you know, you talk about like how decisions made a hundred years ago have continued to play out till this day. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a pretty clear record of wanting to disinvest in education, uh, because you know, the more you educate people, the more they want, uh, the more they may be able to get away from the type of labor that you feel you need them to do. And, uh, you know, we, we don't have to put the pieces together on this. Like there's actual, you know, a long record of quotes from people who are making the decision saying that's exactly right. You know, why would you edu educate someone? They'll just want higher wages or they'll just find other opportunity or they'll they'll compete with us on on these other types of um, uh, types of work. So. Uh, you know, that is uh, easier to do before uh, Brown v. Board. And, uh, you know, the country, the places that want to are kind of able to ignore Brown v. Board for a while. But um, when finally it starts to be enforced, there's, you know, a very clear history of figuring out how to circumvent it. So one of the passages I love uh, about uh, of the book the most is is from the cotton belt and the, the emergence of segregationist academies. So these are private schools uh, that tend to crop up, you know, starting in the mid to late 60s through the 1970s. And, uh, you know, the Citizens Council, sometimes referred to as the White Citizens Council, which is sort of the more established version of the Klan, they actually, one of their... Uh, uh, magazine publication publications offers a step-by-step -step process for how you would start uh, a segregationist economy academy, which is going to be a private school. You know, they would a lot of times just like sell wholesale all of the assets from the public school. You know, sometimes they would like just make minor changes to uh, the mascots or the colors, you know, like uh, dark red goes to maroon or something like that, like to just keep a lot of their traditions uh, uh, headed over to the segregationist academies. So you have thousands and thousands of, of white students who sort of shift over to these private schools. And ever since then, we've had a fight over the uh, use of public funds for private education. And this is like a big piece of the puzzle. This is a big part of where it came from was just a direct goal of avoiding integration. Yeah. And you, you really go through, this is an area where I really think like the time spent during the pandemic of looking through the history really enriched this project because I don't know if I've ever made a list of more books I wanted to get than when I was reading through this section where you go through one like historian after another and there's just such great work done from, I forget some of the names of these scholars, but some of the people at Fisk University, et cetera. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. 100 years ago. Johnson, yeah. And it was fascinating to just see, you know, if you spend any time in Mississippi, you know these places exist, you see them everywhere, to see that they all started during the short period of time and that in certain cases they were explicit about it. So you talk about Marvel Academy, 
in um, Phillips County, Arkansas, which was founded by members of local citizens council. And they proclaim that quote, integration is the corruption of the true American heritage by concept and ideology. Talk about pillow Academy and Greenwood. Uh, you know, there's just one anecdote after another of these places explicitly stating what they're doing. You also trace like the, um, extraction of textbooks and money and moving funds around, you know, even places like Jackson, where I started schools, like where they're pulling textbooks out of the existing public schools and sending them to uh, these citizens, these uh, segregation academies. It, it was it, it was really depressing to read. And, you know, I entered Mississippi in 2013, started its first charter school. And at the time when we were passing the charter law, People who are arguing it's charters, which in Mississippi are nonprofit institutions that are run on open enrollment, the biggest worry was that these would become segregation academies. And so I had to spend a lot of time just talking about how they wouldn't be segregation academies. And uh, thankfully, the history has borne out that they're not. And actually, they're mostly here to serve the people who are uh, in the traditional public school. So if, they're, if somebody would accuse us of being segregated, we're actually segregated in the opposite direction. We're mostly serving uh, black students although we want as much diversity as possible. But under this new voucher ESA debate, it is real. Like in, in looking at this, it is, I know a lot of the people who I've worked together with down there on the charter law, and we've been having like very honest conversations where I'm just like, look, like, I don't know if you can contain the forces that would implement this policy. I know that you're well-intentioned, but like, we need to be honest about what's happening on the ground here, you know? And, and I'm very fearful. There's certain places that are where I'm more warm than others about uh, ESAs and their role in the education system. I would say Mississippi is dead last on my list. Like, I, I think it is not a place to be trusted with these laws. Yeah, I mean, you're not starting from scratch. You're starting from this history. And, and so you can see how, how people and institutions have behaved. And uh, there's a lot of reason to be cautious and to me too, I, you know, this history I think is important for the present debate on on vouchers and and just being cognizant of the history and how do we sort of sort out the well-intentioned school reformers and uh, those who are less so. Uh, it's also, you know, to me, I feel like in conversations about structural racism and the divide between the haves and have-nots in places like Appalachia it's important for us to get into the nuts and bolts of this stuff, right? So like the, the, the basically extraction of textbooks from public schools into these segregationist uh, academies, like that, that is structural racism. And to see, like be able to say, all right, this is how it actually happened. This, these are the concrete nuts and bolts of how it was accomplished. And this is sort of its legacy for places, I think is really important. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a truly amazing read. I know a lot of our listeners are deep, deep education policy wonks, and so I can't recommend uh, this chapter enough. And, and and like I said, it actually will lead you to read a lot of other books because there's a lot in here. And um, it makes it, it honestly colors you because we've been talking about a lot the ESA debate here, and I'm as sympathetic to ESAs as any progressive yeah. or Democrat you're going to find. Yeah. But I do think this history is 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 informative to people to say, like you said, it's not a you're not starting we're not starting with a blank sheet of paper here. Right. You know, it's right. it's very different in places like Mississippi and and there need to be 
guardrails against it. And I've had some debates with people like Corey DeAngelis on this podcast who are the big ESA proponents. And one of the things they're fighting for is leaving it up to the schools to define their own admissions policies. And I'm like, no, like you cannot, like if yeah. you're going to do ESAs, and once again, I am as sympathetic as, as a lot of people, you give Pillow Academy, Marvel Academy, the ability to set its own admissions policies. And the only black kids that are going to be at that school are going to be playing on the football team. Like these places are not to be trusted. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't looked as deep into the overall sort of private uh, school um, uh, sort of data, but I've looked a little bit and I got to say, like, if you want a recipe for more segregated schools, that, that seems like it. So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of cause for caution. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is a debate we've been long having here and one that I'm, I'm trying to keep an open mind about, and I want to see it done well, because I also know that there are black activists who, 100%. the other history here is that, you know, at yeah. some, in response to it, a lot of this, people were starting their own schools, like before all of this, right? Before Brown, totally. right? And yeah. there's that history too. So there's not one history. James Foreman over at Yale Law School has written some good stuff about that, how like the history of school choice is not a simple history. But okay, we, we could go down that rabbit hole forever, but let's talk about corruption. Which yeah. Is, one thing I've noticed, and you guys definitely caught on, and I think this was enriched by the time you spent, is when I talk to people in Mississippi, and I, you, you definitely you know, talk about this uh, when it comes to the three other regions, they don't talk about the things that other people talk about. They talk about how corrupt everybody else is around them. Like, this is the common conversation. 100%. They, it, it is something that is on everybody's minds, and they it's tangible stuff. Like this is like Menendez with the gold bars times 10, you know? Um, and you guys picked up on this. Like this is a real concern of people. There's a deep cynicism about the institutions around them. Yeah, another thing we weren't expecting to write about, uh, but just like came out loud and clear and was impossible to ignore was that every single uh, site that we got to know had a recent case of like, significant government corruption. So Mississippi was the one that's made national headlines with its um, $80 million uh, welfare scandal where, you know, the flexibility in a federal block grant uh, was used to really abscond with tens of millions of dollars, including to, to Brett Favre. Uh, that was in uh, Greenwood in in our field site and sort of happened while we were in the field getting to know the community. Uh, so that one's made national news, but for each one of the, you know, for each one that's nationally known, there's all these other examples that aren't. In Crystal City in 2016, the FBI descends onto City Hall and arrests like all but one member of the city council for taking kickbacks from uh, contractors, uh, and all sorts of things, you know, just a uh, hop, skip and a jump away. There's an illegal gambling operation going on. And then in Appalachia, we just have this like long centuries old, uh, tradition almost of, of kickbacks and, uh, racketeering. Um, we have examples of, of government officials that are in league with drug dealers we heard over and over again from respondents, you know, these stories about uh, the police coming to raid a drug house, and then they check the caller ID and find that the the last call to arrive to the house was from the police, you know, uh, somebody warning them that it was going to happen. And 
you know, when you hear that the first couple of times you think, is there something to this? And then you start to look into it and uh, it's pretty remarkable. So in that chapter, we really juxtapose, um, you know, if you go and you talk to community leaders and any very, very poor community, like what's really holding your uh, community back? I'm almost certain you will hear something about how the poor don't work hard enough or, you know, they're probably not behaving like they should. But, you know, in that case, we're talking about somebody maybe getting a a few hundred or a few thousand dollars in, in welfare benefits that they shouldn't. And that's not the typical person. And juxtapose that to, you know, in every single community, there's an example of this kind of corruption that either is literally taking money out of the hands of of poor residents, like in the welfare scandal, or, you know, means that uh, government officials are not at all sort of have their eye on the ball and trying to make things better in their community. They're trying to make things better for themselves. Yeah, you have data from the Mississippi scandal that's that's jaw-dropping about the, the rejection rate. I forget what it was, but they just basically weren't giving the vast majority of people the benefits that they deserved. And um, there's still a lot of reporting to be done to connect the dots to that and anything that was happening with FAR, but they both happened simultaneously, which raised a lot of eyebrows, right? They were having a really high rejection rate to families that seemed like they qualified. People were confused. And then you had all this money going where it shouldn't go within the system. And those don't seem coincidental, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And, and shout out to the the folks over at Mississippi Today and, and the Clarion Ledger who've done really good work on this. Yeah, program. absolutely. Local journalism and like serious podcasts that really dig into things. I think that's, you know, that's our best antidote for this sort of stuff, honestly, right now. Yeah. And, you know, we could talk forever, but with the, the few minutes we have remaining, you have a chapter about what makes a place work. And you talk about the kinds of places that are uh, great places to live. That That too is surprising, Talk a little bit about, you know, the the places that you found that are more just, uh, better places to live. And mix in a little bit about, like, you have this poetic almost explanation of the importance of place, gathering spaces, civic glue, right? Like the, the combination of institutions and in-person institutions uh, and how, and maybe talk about how some of the places that you found that are good places to live and grow up have done it right? Yeah, so um, as we got further along our project and we were studying these extremely poor places, we thought, well, let's see what the other side of the index uh, shows. The places with really, really low poverty and um, super long life expectancy, great infant outcomes, and really high rates of social mobility. And they, they also were predominantly rural communities, but in this case, in the upper Midwest. So a lot of places in Minnesota, North Dakota, uh, some places in Wisconsin. Uh, these communities tended to be spread out, um, you know, across that region. So, Kathy and Tim, my co-authors, they decided uh, they should do another road trip. So they spent time uh, driving through those places. And another thing that we saw, it wasn't sort of in our index, but something that became clear is that they were also places where inequality was extremely low. And actually, home ownership rates were extremely high. And as they drove through these places, you could see not these like vast plantations that were owned by a single family, but farm after farm, family farm after family farm that was owned, you know, broadly across uh, many families. 
And uh, so we tracked that back. We were looking for like the factors that could describe that because these things, as we had you know been arguing, didn't appear out of thin air. And uh, the strongest correlation, uh, you know, lots more sort of causal uh, work to be done on this, but the, the strongest factor we could see is that these are places, many of which were settled through the 1862 uh, Homestead Act that made property accessible to a, a broad range of people. And so we think there's a historical legacy in that. And, and they do tend to be places where volunteering is highest. They're actually places where um, people perceive the least amount of corruption. Uh, they are places with uh, gathering spaces. So as you mentioned, we uh, ended up in our chapter that really focuses on the opioid epidemic that continues to ravage Appalachia, as well as the nation. You know, we have as many people dying from opioids as we ever have. It's just much more, you know, shifted to illegal opioids. By the way, in, in we don't have time to go down that rabbit hole. It's almost its own part too. But you you, you described how these companies didn't pick, pick Appalachia by accident. They viewed it as an opportunity for very much the same reasons that you have flagged it as an unjust place to, to live. Absolutely. Yeah. It's almost like they had a similar algorithm to us and they could get focus on. And, and in this case, uh, a lot of poverty, but also hardship, um, but uh, uh, high rates of disability. Uh, there's a lot of pain in Appalachia, like coming through um, sort of the industrial makeup of the place. Just, uh, and lots of family physicians who were sort of primed to uh, sort of be nudged towards opioids. So, you know, I think that's a critically important story that uh, doesn't stem from us. But, you know, once you start reading the history, you know, we really came to think of the opioid epidemic as like the latest extractive industry to hit uh, Appalachia. And we heard from, you know, family after family, what explains, you know, what would you do to really counteract this? And we heard over and over again, like, kids get into drugs because there's nothing else to do. And, uh, you know, at first we didn't take that seriously, but then you start to look at the, the research once again and you see like, oh, there's there's a lot to this. And these other places that are, are so much better off, you know, property ownership is broad-based, inequality is low, uh, they've invested in their educational systems and they are connected to each other in ways that other communities across the nation aren't. Uh, it is worth mentioning, by the way, that the Homestead Act uh, and other financing, you know, these are things that weren't available to everybody, right? So this is this gets to what we talk about structural racism, right? We talk about um, the GI Bill. We talk, I mean, you talk about anything, how the past dictates the future and the debate over structural racism today. One of the reasons why, even though like you've listened to the show, I'm sympathetic to a lot of arguments from my conservative friends. One area that I will consistently be a bit different than a lot of them is like the role of structural racism and how that past has played out till today. We don't have enough time to go too deep into that, but I just want to mention that you mentioned it in the book. So I, yeah, I just want to make sure people that. understand that. The other piece here is, wait, let's end this on just last minute. What should we do about this? Like you have, a, at the, you end the book with on a hopeful note saying, these are the kinds of things that we need to consider. Yeah, I hope the book offers a, an approach uh, that is, you know, as researchers, as, as thought leaders such as yourself, that um, a lot of times we should start with listening and uh, not assume that we know what's going on and then take seriously what we hear. So, um, you know, if there's nothing to do but drugs, 
honestly, like, I think, you know, we sometimes we try to think of complicated solutions to these things. You know, maybe we should be building arcades uh, and uh, splash pads <laughs> and like yeah. figuring out, how, you know, I'm I'm 100 percent sure if like a foundation started doing that, that it would be incredibly well received in these communities. There's not a, a single silver bullet uh, for this particular issue because, you know, the challenges are multidimensional, but, you know, we're, we're quite confident that bringing jobs back and starting to re- rethink trade policy and, and how do we live in the present uh, and also bring meaningful opportunities to folks. How do we equalize education? Like one of the things we saw was like paying your early career teachers more is maybe the single best thing you can do, especially in in places where it's really challenging to be a teacher. So, you know, these are just a couple of examples. We mentioned local journalism, like, you know, go out and subscribe to your Mississippi Today or, you know, your Lexington uh, Herald Leader. Like these places are doing important work. Um, You know, I think if we, we have to take a multidimensional approach, but change really is possible. Thank you so much for this book. It's wonderful. Go out and get it. The Injustice of Place. I promise you, listeners, uh, you will gather so much from this. You'll underline every sentence. It really gives you a textured sense of what it means to grow up in different corners of this country. And and I don't know which one is going to air first, this or we did an interview with Todd Rose from Populous, who has some new data out about what people want out of life. Oh, and one of the things that people want is a sense of purpose. They want they want an in-person, uh, tangible purpose-driven life. And if you're listening out there and you're deciding, especially the young people out there, what to do with your life, like go to one of these places, right? Like go to one of these places and get involved. And in that sense, like I I want to shout out the people. Yeah. Yeah, Like I, when I, and it makes me like nostalgic for those days. I spent the morning for reasons I won't go into here, like with uh, people from Mississippi on the phone, just dealing with something going on there in the education system. And so I would just want to shout some of them out, like Mississippi first doing great work. Yeah. Talk about the teacher shortage. They've been doing great work there. Mississippi Today, the Clarion Ledger, which is holding on, right? Bill yeah. Bynum over at the Hope Credit Union. Yeah. Like these people are doing incredible work out there. You could be one of those people. And what's amazing is that there's a book called Dispatches from Pluto. I don't know if you've ever read this yeah, book. It's sure. about Mississippi. Yeah. Um, you can go to these places and it could be magical. Like it's not that these are just sad places. These are often thrilling places to live with some of the best people you've ever met. Uh, and so if you're out there thinking about what to do next or what to do at all, um, send us in a note. We can help you. Like there's no shortage of work to be done. No shortage of amazing people out there. And I'm really glad you guys went on to this. It seems like like an amazing, fun, fulfilling, and important piece of academic work and journalism. So thank you and your team so much. Hey, it was my pleasure. And just uh, to add to your note, I'll say, you know, I have I have so many students who've done exactly what you describe. And, and I think they will all say it's the hardest thing they ever did to, to move to one of these places and really try to do meaningful work and um, the most purposeful thing they ever did and, and, and the, maybe the most important. So uh, I think it's a great call to action. All right. Well, thank you, Luke. My pleasure. Thank you. It was a, it was a treat. It was a treat.